I'm sure that all of you are keenly aware that in this fallen world, we are increasingly confronted by ungodly activities and ungodly thinking. All too often, we ourselves get caught up in some of those things. With that in mind, I invite you to turn to the very beginning of Romans chapter 12, which is a very familiar passage for many of us. But don't miss that it provides us with some extremely necessary commands. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Verse 1 there deals with the material part of our being, our body, which will be our focus today. Verse 2 deals with the immaterial part of our being, our soul, or specifically our mind here. And that will be our focus next week, Lord willing. My outline for today, for verse 1, has three parts. An urgent plea, an undefiled presentation, and some underlying principles. An urgent plea about an undefiled presentation according to some underlying principles. Let's look at this urgent plea. He says, I urge you, therefore. And the verb here to urge it literally means to call to one side, but carries the meaning and is often translated implore or beg, uh, appeal, exhort, plead. In the original Greek of that sentence, the word urge comes before the word therefore signifying that this urgency is a greater emphasis in the sentence. But why the urgency? Well, he gives us a clue when he says, therefore. And of course, as a good Bible student, you ask the question, what is the therefore there for, right? Well, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it's indicating that what he's about to urge us about arises from what he has just said. Now, you realize that the context here at the very beginning of chapter 12, that these verses serve as a transition between the more doctrinal section of the book, the first um, 11 chapters, and the more application-oriented part of the book, the remainder from here on. And it serves that purpose much like Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 does. Well, in Romans chapters 1 through 8, Paul presents a systematic, detailed explanation of the gospel. He covers man's depravity in sin, the inability of the law to forsake or to save from sin. He covers justification, being pronounced not guilty by grace through faith alone, not by works. He covers our position in Christ in that salvation, as well as our progressive sanctification in Christ. Then in chapters 9 through 11, Paul reveals his deep concern 
for the salvation of the Jews in particular. So I'd encourage you to flip back in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. And here he begins to explain the urgency. He begins chapter 9 of Romans saying, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Later in chapter 9, down in verse 30, he writes, What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? he asks. Well, he gives the answer. Because they did not pursue it by faith but as though it were by works. And he begins chapter, one, chapter 10 by saying, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Later in chapter 10, beginning in verse 21, he says, But as for Israel, God says, All the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. And he begins chapter 11 by saying, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And then down in verse 5, chapter 11. In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. And then skip down to verse 25 of chapter 11. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. And verse 28, from the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, They are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Paul isn't merely saying here in the beginning of chapter 12, now that I've presented all these important doctrines about salvation, you need to apply them to your life, although that is very true. But more specifically, he's saying as a matter of urgency, that our application of sound doctrine is also needed evangelistically. That God would use the testimony of our lives to reach out to the Jews and presumably to others as well. This is actually very similar to Paul's urging in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 3, where he writes, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another, in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And it's also similar to Peter's urging in 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Likewise, Paul's urgent plea in Romans 12, 1 
It's motivated at least partly by the role our behavior should have as a testimony to unbelievers. But what is he pleading us to do? Well, that brings us to the undefiled presentation. But a presentation of what? He says, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So we are to present our bodies. That verb to present means to place a person or thing at someone else's disposal. It's in the aorist tense in the Greek, which is neither past, present, nor future. It doesn't fit neatly into English. Uh, and the timing in this case is not specified, but the phrase, I urge you to present, clearly does not have the past in mind. Consider, for example, some New Testament verses with that very same verb in the same aorist tense. In Luke 2, 22, speaking of Joseph and Mary, it says, when the days for their purification according to the law of Moses were completed, they brought him, that is Jesus, up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. That's very clearly a one-time past event. Colossians 1.22, yet he, Christ, has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach referring to a one-time future event. In 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. That's not necessarily a one-time event. The context there is ongoing practice. And that seems to be the most parallel to our usage of that term here in Romans 12.1. The context here suggests an ongoing presenting of ourselves to God in this life rather than our ultimately standing before him in judgment one day. Particularly since we are to present, what we are to present is our bodies. Now, that word bodies in the original manuscripts used the Greek word soma. And that's a very common New Testament word, and it always means, guess what? Body. Our physical body. He's talking about our actual bodies. We are to sacrifice them. And that may bring some strange thoughts into your minds. This word sacrifice literally does mean offering up on an altar. It's the kind of sacrifices you might visualize from the Old Testament offering system. And it seems reasonable to conclude that Paul's concern for the Jews leads him to make this allusion to the similarities between what he's urging us to do and the Old Testament system of thank offerings. That is, the sacrifice in view here is not to receive forgiveness, but to show gratitude for the forgiveness already received. Well, what kind of sacrifice should we make of our bodies? Well, Paul gives us five descriptions. Do you see those? The first is that it's to be a living sacrifice. Now, that's a participle from the verb zao, to live. It means alive. And so we've got here the contrast between live human bodies in Romans 12:1 being sacrificed as opposed to the dead animals or maybe grain offerings from the Old Testament sacrificial system. But he's not advocating human sacrifice here, i.e. killing ourselves, but rather the sacrifice should happen 
while we're alive. How? Well, another word he uses is holy. Hagios means sacred, set apart, pure, saintly. Much like the Old Testament sacrifices were set apart to God and the animals were to be without spot and blemish. God wants us to devote our bodies to his purpose and glory as opposed to our pleasure and glory. He also uses the word acceptable. The, uh, the word there means that it needs to be not just pleasing, but well-pleasing. In other words, meeting both the letter and the spirit of the command. The Bible speaks in many places about when God accepts certain sacrifices or not. You remember in Genesis 4, 4 to 5, that the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. In Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, David acknowledges to God by saying, you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Likewise, Isaiah 1 11 through 17. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs or goats. And verse 15. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. And then in Amos, chapter 5, 21-23, God through Amos says, I hate I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. On a positive note, in Philippians 4, verse 18, the Apostle Paul commends the Philippians when he says, But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing, the same word, well-pleasing to God. So the point is not just that we should set our bodies apart for God, which would address our intent, but also that God would be very pleased with what we do to and with our bodies, which addresses the result. Both the intent and the result are key. Paul uses a fourth word here to describe our sacrifice, and that is it's spiritual. The Greek word there is logikos. And you might imagine, and it's correct, that that's underlying our word logical. Sometimes translated reasonable, rational, logical. Uh, it's an adjective derived from the noun logos, meaning word. And this particular form of it, this 
logikos is used only one more time in the New Testament. It's in 1 Peter 2.2, 2, where we read, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word. That's this word logikos. It's of the word. So that by it, you may grow in respect to salvation. John Calvin paraphrased Paul's meaning in Romans 12.1 as follows. What I exhort you to do is nothing but a reasonable service, consistent with the dictates of reason. God has done great things for you, and there's nothing but right and just that you should dedicate yourselves wholly to him. He's right on. What we have and what we do to and with our bodies is to be logical in the fullest sense. That is consistent with the word of God and with what God has done for us. But fifthly, he refers to it as a service of worship. That's actually one word in the Greek. And it comes from the verb to serve. So often in scripture, worship and serve are used together synonymously, as it is here. And it means the worship of the one true God. You remember I read earlier from Romans 9, where he was describing the Israelites to whom belongs the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises. We need to view what we do to and with our bodies as worship, serving God. If you have surrendered to Jesus Christ as Lord, you can't presume that he is Lord only of your soul. He is also Lord over your body. That brings us to Paul's third point. He provides some underlying principles here. And first, he addresses who must sacrifice their bodies as worship. He explains that it's for Christians alone, the only ones who can really truly worship God. He calls them brethren, his brothers and sisters in Christ. He's clearly addressing believers all the way from chapter 1. But he may be here particularly addressing Gentiles, Gentile believers, particularly in the previous chapter, verse 13, he makes reference to them. So this verse is not saying that unbelievers can earn salvation or even God's pleasure by being good stewards of their bodies. That's not what it's saying. But why then must we sacrifice our bodies? Well, our motive needs to be one of gratitude to God for the mercy he has shown us. He says, by the mercies of God. Referring to compassion, his heart of compassion. And from the context immediately preceding this verse, we can see that sacrificing our bodies should be a natural response to the great mercy that God has shown to us. In Romans 11, verses 30 to 32, we read, For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they may also now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience, disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. Actually, the, the word for mercy used in chapter 11 focuses on the merciful actions being shown mercy, while the word here in chapter 12 focuses on the inward feeling of compassion and mercy. So as we contemplate the inward compassion that God had for us, which prompted him 
to save us by his great mercy, it is logical for us to surrender every aspect of our lives to him. If you do not submit your body to Christ's lordship, you do not understand or give thanks for his great mercy for you. But Paul provides a second reason why we need to sacrifice our bodies to God, and that's to make unsaved Jews jealous. Remember back in chapters 10 through 11, like uh, specifically chapter 10, verse 19, he says, but I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? For Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger you. And then in chapter 11, beginning in verse 11, he says, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them, that is the Jews, jealous. Now, if their transgression is riches for the world and their failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If somehow I might move to jealousy my fellow countrymen and save some of them. So why would the Jews become jealous? Perhaps desiring for themselves the righteousness they see in us? I hope so. Desiring to know God as they know they should? That would be nice. But perhaps more common, the testimony of our lives being consistent with our message would convict them. They would know that they had not lived up to God's law. Some would try to cover up that fact by persecuting those who made it obvious, while others would repent. We actually see two examples of that in the book of Acts. In Acts 13, starting in verse 44, Paul is in Pisidian Antioch, which is now a part of Turkey, where it says, the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. And then later in Acts 17, beginning in verse 3, he's in Thessalonica. And he told them, this Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob, and set the city in an uproar. So Paul experienced firsthand the jealousy of the Jews when they were confronted by the news that salvation was a free gift that even Gentiles could receive. He also saw some of them drawn to the Lord through that. Here in Romans 12, he seems to be saying that not only will our message move them to such jealousy, but so will our lifestyle. When it's clear that what we do to and with our bodies is a logical part of worshiping God, who has showered us with such great mercy. Well, how might we apply that today? I'd like to suggest five principles for application, building on this passage as well as some other clear biblical teaching. And the first I would call the praise principle. The praise principle. Our stewardship of our bodies is to be a service of worship, not self-indulgence. The result of true worship is that God is exalted, is it not? You remember from Philippians 1, beginning in verse 18, it says, What then? 
Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. So what we do to and with our bodies should exalt God, not us. That leads to the second principle, the, what I call the possession principle. This passage says it's to be acceptable to God, not rejected by him. Indeed, the body of a Christian belongs to God and is a temple of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 6, 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. And down in verse 18, flee immorality. Every other sin a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Indeed, the Lord owns our bodies. Not just because he created them and fashioned each one uniquely, but he bought us with a precious price. And he wants us to use them to serve him in righteousness and purity. Therefore, be a good steward of your body. The third principle I would call the power principle. The power principle. Our sacrifice is to be holy, set apart for God by his enablement. And the Holy Spirit gives us the power to forsake the fleshly inclinations of our bodies. Earlier in Romans 8, starting in verse 12, we read, So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Likewise, Colossians 3.5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. And of course, anytime we're serving ourselves rather than God, we're idolaters. 2 Timothy 2.22. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. The point is that we're obligated to yield to the Holy Spirit's power and leading us in the stewardship of our bodies. The fourth principle I would call the purpose principle. This passage says that our sacrifice is to be reasonable, serving a logical purpose. The body is a means to the end, not the end in and of itself. In 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 23, we read, I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so that I may become a fellow partaker in it. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives a prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And in verse 26, 
Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body, making it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Discipline your body so that you can serve Christ well. If you abuse your body, you'll eventually be sidelined from effective ministry for God due to things like tiredness, illness, or even a shortened life. Remember, we are his slaves, charged with advancing his purposes with all that he has given us. And that includes our bodies. The fifth principle I call the priorities principle. The sacrifice is to be a living sacrifice, voluntary, not begrudging, now, not later, from the heart, not superficial. One implication of that is that bodily discipline must not be a substitute for spiritual discipline. 1 Timothy 4, verses 7 through 8, say, Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is of only little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things, since it holds the promise of the, for the present life and also for the life to come. As important as bodily discipline is, spiritual discipline is even more important. Disciplining our bodies is necessary to make the most of our time on earth. But making the most of our time on earth should be all about laying up treasure in heaven, according to Matthew 6. So let's consider then some specific ways this applies to us. First, we would each do well to evaluate ourselves against the five principles I just outlined. And so, for example, do you exalt your body by what you do to and with it, or do you exalt God with and by it? according to the praise principle. Do you indulge your body as if you owned it? Or do you use it in righteousness and purity to serve the Lord who owns your body according to the possession principle? Do you yield to the cravings of your body or to the Holy Spirit who gives us the self-control to live righteously according to the power principle? Do you neglect your body or do you discipline it so that you can serve Christ well according to the purpose principle? And do you discipline your body as an end in and of itself or is that an outgrowth of your spiritual discipline according to the priorities principle? Well, I'd like to conclude by considering specifics about how this plays out in our everyday lives. And I'd like to focus, first of all, on what we do to our bodies. This obviously includes eating and drinking. Maybe it's too much, maybe it's too little. Scripture certainly warns against gluttony and a lack of self-control. Most of us in the U.S., are overweight, many by a lot. The medical community rightly is concerned about obesity, even in children. And so there's an opportunity here for us to be light in the darkness. But even too little food is um, a real disorder and abuse of our bodies. And there's a lot of pressure sometimes put on particularly girls to, to have a, uh, a thin body, and that is often unhealthy. But it's not just the quantity 
of the food is also the quality. How many of us are uh, more likely to be eating junk food than real food? Hmm? Uh, fast foods, sweets. I, if you know me well, you know I have a sweet tooth, okay? Um, so I'm preaching to myself here. But there are also addictions to foods or drinks. For example, can you last a week without caffeine? Can you last even until noon on any given day without caffeine? I think if you're chuckling, you probably can't. <laughs> uh, but there are other things that we do to our bodies that are not intended, like drugs or smoking, things we put into our bodies apart from food. And the Bible, of course, specifically condemns drunkenness. Uh, but even the, harm to, the physical harm to our bodies is key as well. But apart from what we put into our bodies, sometimes what we do to our bodies involves things like piercings, tattoos, appearance-enhancing surgeries, hairstyles. Now, these things aren't inherently evil or sinful, but sometimes the motive is. So we need to be careful. Exercise, of course, is an important part of overall health and energy. Uh, and again, it could be too little or too much. Posture can cause actually harm. You know, improper posture can cause harm to our bodies. So we need to be there. Rest. Getting our necessary rest is important for the health of our bodies. And um, that doesn't mean sleeping in the sermon, right? <laughs> but there's a time and a place for everything. And again, it could be too little if we're overly anxious and maybe have the wrong priorities, or it could be too little if we're basically lazy, which all of us are. I need to say, though, that these days, one of the primary opposites of offering our bodies as living sacrifices to God is to reject the gender he sovereignly gave to each one of us from the moment of conception. Consider, for example, Genesis 1, 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Later in Genesis 5, verse 1. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. Then in Psalm 139, we read, For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand." Listen, male and female are not interchangeable. Masculinity and femininity are God's beautiful design, not randomly assigned, culturally defined, personally chosen, or medically changeable. To believe otherwise is to shake our fist at our creator and owner. If you're not content, with the gender God gave you, seek biblical counsel.
If you have family members or friends who have bought into the lie that gender can and should be whatever you want, prayerfully read for them passages I just read from Genesis and the Psalms. Explain to them that God created each one of us uniquely to love and serve him. And that our male and female bodies are God's handiwork intricately tied to who he has created us to be. The bottom line is, what testimony do we communicate to unbelievers by what we do to our bodies? That a relationship with God has no bearing on our stewardship of our bodies? Jesus is Lord of my heart, but I'm Lord of my body? Is that what we're demonstrating? Or someone might say of us, that person says that God has transformed his life. But if the shape that he's in is any indication, I don't want any part of it. Or they might say, there's a representative of Jesus Christ. Someone who seems to have submitted not just his soul, but also his body to the authority of God. He, has seen, he seems to enjoy good things, but he has a self-control I've only dreamed of. Do your choices and your physical condition undermine or validate your witness for Christ? Paul urges you to make choices and develop habits that will not only be well-pleasing to God, but will also reinforce your testimony to a world that lacks hope and self-control. Carefully evaluate your diet and other habits, asking yourself, how you can better steward the body God has given you with which to serve him. Self-control in this area will help you feel better, avoid illness, live longer, and have more time and energy to invest in the kingdom of God. But not only must we be careful with what we do to our bodies, it's just as important what we do with our bodies. And here, perhaps, our most common, common challenge is about clothing. Do you seek to glorify your body by tight-fitting clothes or revealing fashions? Why? Often, it's to fit in with or to please or even seduce others. Let me offer you some tips on glorifying God with our clothing. An underlying biblical principle, of course, is modesty. Modesty. God ordained clothing to cover our shame ever since he clothed Adam and Eve in the garden. Genesis 3. So don't expose either fully or through tight-fitting clothes the private parts of your body to anyone other than your spouse or, when necessary, medical personnel. If you're not married, show love and respect to your future spouse by dressing modestly now. Don't be enticing or even suggestive in your clothing. Dress in a way that you'd be very comfortable in the presence of Christ at any moment. Women and girls, commit yourselves to understanding better what can cause a man to look at you in a lustful way and develop a wardrobe that will avoid creating that temptation? Jesus taught that a man doesn't have to commit adultery physically to have committed adultery in his heart. Perhaps the parallel for women is that wearing clothing that glorifies their bodies is just as bad as complete public nudity or exhibitionism particularly if her heart is intent on self-exaltation or to please or even seduce others rather than to honor God. Men, train your wives and daughters to dress modestly. The way they dress affects your testimony. Also, men, commit yourselves to dressing modestly and dressing well as a representative of Jesus Christ, not a slob. I think that comes naturally to us men. 
None of these commitments require a lot of money, just self-control, perhaps some creativity and wisdom. Take the initiative to seek the counsel of those who have demonstrated more success in this area. A final admonition concerning what we do with our bodies has to do with sexual purity. And you know the biblical principles. Any sexual relationship outside of the marriage of one man and one woman is a rejection of God's wise and loving design and ultimately destroys one's body. Sexual immorality by a Christian unites Christ with immorality. As I read earlier from 1 Corinthians 6, we're commanded in Scripture to flee sexual immorality. Don't be deceived into thinking that you're strong enough to withstand the temptation. In summary then, evaluating yourself by this ultimate application of the command to present your body as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, is this. Are you sacrificing your testimony and God's purposes in order to satisfy the cravings and vanity of your body? Or are you sacrificing the cravings and vanity of your body in order to advance God's purposes, including your testimony? Let me say that again. Are you sacrificing your testimony and God's purposes in order to satisfy the cravings and vanity of your body? Or are you sacrificing the cravings and vanity of your body in order to advance God's purposes, including your testimony? Sacrifice the unhealthy cravings and lusts of your flesh, seeking to grow in the self-control that the Holy Spirit provides us so that your worship of God would be evident even by what you do to and with your body. And that unbelievers, including Jews, would see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Don't be legalistic. Rather, honor your Lord and Master from a pure heart. Let us pray. Father, teach us to serve you with everything we are as well as with everything you have given us, including our bodies. You have redeemed us so that we would serve you joyfully. May we do so in your power and for your glory. Amen.